Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Kurt Williams. Kurt is one of uh, three Williams that I know in the Utah area, but he's not one of the two brothers that most people think. I thought so at first, but I was corrected years ago. Um, Kurt is the uh, owner of Cruiser Outfitters. We're going to talk about that business. We're going to talk about the Cruiser Heritage Museum. We're going to talk about Expedition 7 and X Overland and everything else that uh, evolves around Kurt. Kurt, thank you for coming on board and uh, spending some time with us. Well, thank you, Rich. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start off right away. And uh, where were you born and raised? I'm from right here in Utah. In fact, uh, I'm at my shop here in Murray, and I was born in Murray as well, so not too far away. Um, been fortunate to travel a lot around the world in different places, but I just can't really think of anywhere I'd want to live other than Utah, primarily because of all the amazing recreation opportunities we have here. Right. And that's, that is, uh, that is big there. Of course, there's, there's people out there that are trying to stomp on all that, especially motorized. Maybe we'll get into some of that. So we can talk all about that too. You bet. (laughs) So how did, uh, Growing up in Murray, what was it like back, uh, you're in your late 30s now? Early 40s. I, early I appreciate 40s. you saying that. That's kind of you to say, but <laughs> early 40s. Early 40s. So what was it like growing up in Murray 40 years ago? You know, I, I, like awesome. I really loved uh, this this whole area. I actually grew up in Sandy, which is just a little further south of here, kind of all one giant conglomerate of city. But I was fortunate. We we grew up right on like the south end of Sandy, like the Sandy Draper border. And all growing up, we had an area just five minutes away called Corner Canyon. And I grew up riding dirt bikes up there. You could shoot guns up there. And certainly all through high school could four-wheel up there. And it was kind of a mix of uh, private land and then forest service land kind of on the upper sides of it. And unfortunately, nowadays, it's all homes and development and closed off trails to motorize, which 
it's so unfortunate because that's kind of really what got me so interested in off-roading is the fact that we could uh, ditch school or take a, a long lunch and go off-roading for a few hours in the middle of the day. And we did that a lot too. Right. And what, what kind of student were you? Well, I'd say uh, middle of the road. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed school and had a lot of fun, but I wasn't like a, I wouldn't call myself a, a pure academic. I, I did exactly what it took to get through and get decent enough grades that my parents didn't uh, put the hammer down on me. But I had a lot of fun in high school and uh, junior high too. So I uh, many great adventures and still very fond memories of all the fun things that we did that probably still shouldn't talk about too many of them to this day. <laughs> uh, especially if you ever have plans on running for political office. <laughs> Right. There's photos and video that will pop up one of these days, so I kind of have to watch myself. Right. I get it. Um, yeah. So when uh, while in school, did you uh, participate in, in sports or scouting or anything ex- extra? Yeah, I was really involved in scouting, which is a big thing here in Utah, or, or was uh, at least then. It's kind of tapered off now for a variety of different reasons. But uh, Boy Scouts are really big, so that had me in the outdoors a lot. And then, yeah, I did. I played Little League football, and I wrestled all through high school as well. Okay, wrestler. All right. And yeah. uh, when when you wrestled, what uh, what weight division did you start off as a freshman? I would imagine. Oh, I was a little guy. I was. Uh, I wrestled one nineteen as a freshman and a sophomore. Maybe sophomore, I was up to one twenty five, and by my senior year, I was. I had to cut quite a bit of weight, but I was wrestling uh, one fifty two and one sixty. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And did you, uh, did you go to, I'm going to, I'm going to guess here. Did you, you went to college? I did. Yeah. Right here in Utah. And did you go to BYU or Utah? University of Utah. Yeah. The real school, the actual university. (laughs) So I went to, yeah, I went to the U of U, uh, graduated in, I graduated in, uh, let's see, God, man, I'm feeling old now, 2006. I went through the engineering program. So did the mechanical engineering program at the university of Utah and absolutely loved it. And, uh, really yeah, don't, don't regret it at all. So did you, did you take those kind of classes, mechanical drawing, all that kind of stuff, um, in high school as well? Not a whole lot. In fact, when I, through high school, Kind of, I did some AP and some college placement classes just to get a little bit of credit, but really I had a mind of being a business management major, which is kind of ironic given what I actually do now with my life, more so than like true mechanical engineering, though I definitely dabble in that a lot with the parts we manufacture and, and, and parts we support and tech support. But I got into, uh, I started the community college, Salt Lake Community College, Slick as it's often called or Redwood High School, as I call it. Uh, it's kind of like the, the place you go if you don't want to get super serious about school right off the bat, which I wasn't necessarily super serious. I was far more serious about Land Cruisers. But to appease my, my parents and kind of keep progressing my life, I started at the community college and uh, did business management. And I got like, I don't know, a year, 18 months into that, just a lot of generals, but also started taking some business classes and kind of quickly decided like, I don't see myself like really pursuing this as a degree. Uh, and I learned a lot and like right, wrong or indifferent. I decided kind of started looking around and engineering had always been something I've loved. I worked at a small engine shop as a teenager and had had land, you know, had a land cruiser starting at 15 and was building that with my dad. So kind of always loved mechanics and welding and 
So engineering just seemed like a more natural fit, and I jumped over to the engineering program, and that was that. Kind of st- stuck with that right to the end. Okay. So the Land Cruiser, um, you said you're 15 years old. Was the uh, was Toyota's kind of the thing around the house, or was it something that no, just intrigued you? Know, you? We- just intrigued me. My dad had a some of my earliest memories, and I barely remember this was like a late, a uh, well, I guess an early model, but full, early model full size Bronco. So like seventy eight, seventy nine, just after the kind of the relaunch of the the newer, bigger Broncos, post uh, like box Bronco style. And I vaguely remember that. I can't like claim to have like any like memories of that. Uh, other than us owning one, but really, my dad had an F two fifty Ford F two fifty that we did a lot of camping and um, again, kind of growing up on the south end of the valley there before it was all developed. There were a lot of dirt roads, and you know, on the way home from an event or something, we could talk my dad into doing some hill climbs and playing around. But just did a lot of family camping and boating, so we would end up you know using the four by fours to drag a boat down a beach and and play around that way. It wasn't like necessarily go out to do a four by four trail, but we would go camping and thus do a four by four trail to get to where the camp was. Right. Um, so kind of grew up around that. The the Land Cruiser happened. Uh, I had a neighbor that had one and I kind of didn't even know what it was. This is, you know, I'm like 10, 11 years old and he was a hang glider actually. And I always remember him having this Land Cruiser, which I would have easily mistaken as a Jeep at the time with a hang glider on it. But I came to really recognize what that was later, but I was on a mountain biking trip in Moab. I was 14 years old, 13 or 14. And I was on a mountain biking trip with our scout troop in Moab doing the porcupine, uh, or sorry, we were doing Poison Spider Mesa this time. Wow. We're, we're mountain biking Poison Spider Mesa, and I remember, and I, I somewhere have some old photos of this, like back when you could have those little portable, uh, not portable, but the disposable cameras, you know, like the action cameras that were the coolest thing the at the time. The little 110 type like, things, yeah. Ex- exactly, with like 20 shots on them, then you drop the whole camera off at the uh, at the local film developer. But I had one of those, and a group of Land Cruisers came through. And there was maybe eight or ten of them. I remember thinking, like, hey, those things are so cool. Like something, but that's when I kind of first started recognizing the difference between, like, a Land Cruiser and a Jeep. And by the time I was, like, 14, 15, I was really starting to look for a vehicle to buy and build. I'd always been into dirt bikes and go-karts and had, a, you know, mini bikes and things like that always around the house that we were tinkering with. And I would ride them all over town and, like... Sandy was getting quite developed in the south end of Sandy by that time, so we were losing the big fields and places to ride, but I still kind of just rode dirt bikes all over the city and got away with it at the time. Kind of one, one more of those things you can't do these days without getting in a lot of trouble. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I started kind of shopping for one, and, you know, I was actually looking at Willie's Wagons. They they really intrigued me as well to get, like, a, a Willie's Wagon, and I, I looked at a few, and I remember I was, I was, like, 15 years old, and there was the, this is when you're, getting the newspaper to climb to the classifieds. And I remember calling, you know, I'm like this 14, 15 year old kid that knows nothing about cars, no, thinks I know a lot, but I know nothing. And I remember this guy telling me he has, he has lockers, like this Willie's Jeep he had had lockers, Willie's wagon. And I remember going like, oh, cool. It's got locking hubs. Awesome. Like, I know what those are. Cause my dad had those on his truck and the guy's like, no, 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 this has lockers in the differential. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Those are great too. I had no clue what they even were, but he, here's this guy trying to sell me his Jeep and, Anyway, didn't end up buying it. I went and looked at a couple Land Cruisers, and and a family member heard that I was looking for a Land Cruiser, and I'm 15 at this time, and she says, you know what, my brother has one of those in the back of my parents' yard in like a little town just uh, South Jordan, just five, ten minutes from here, south of Salt Lake, 
And she said, he's in the Navy now, and he's going to be gone for another four years, just, just re-enlisted, signed back up again. Um, maybe I'll, I know my parents would love to get out of their yard. Let's see if we, if he'll be willing to sell it. So kind of took a few months of them writing him letters and, and negotiating and all of it, but I was able to buy a 1968 FJ40 for $1,500. And it was, it was a pretty rough truck. It had, he was kind of hard on it, but it didn't take much to drag it home and kind of get it running. So that's where it all started. Nice. Very nice. And what, uh, what was the first thing you did to that? that Land Cruiser besides clean? Well, the first, yeah, cleaned it out. Like there was probably 300 cigarette butts in a rather small <laughs> Land Cruiser ashtray on the dash. So that took a little while, little, little drug paraphernalia. He was kind of known as a partier in his earlier years before his Navy time. And uh, so yeah, it took a little while to clean everything out. The first thing I did, and this is, this is a sad story is my parents have a little bit of a slope driveway. I'm still, I'm 15 living at mom and dad's house. And they indulged me on letting me rebuild this thing on the side of the house with the help of my dad. He was a, a contractor, but kind of had always been into cars. So he was very supportive in helping me rebuild this, this uh, cruiser. But I had it on the side of the house on a little bit of a slant, and the tires were just completely rotted out. And like every day I'd have to air up the tires. And I'd go out there and kind of like try and get it to fire up with a little bit of starter fluid. It, wasn't, it needed a car rebuild. It needed a lot of stuff. But he would tell me, hey, go air up the tires so it doesn't just look like this riffraff on the side of our house so the neighbors aren't all upset and so that day i went out and aired up the tires and i had obviously been playing around with it and left it in neutral didn't even think about it oh, and, and since it was a flat tires it didn't move so i start airing up the tires and it rolls back into the back of that f-250 my dad and put a nice big dent in the side of it so that was a sad face day of learning uh, the importance of securing a vehicle before you exit it or checking on those things before you air up tires or do a recovery, for example. So I've never forgotten that lesson because it was an expensive and sad one. Yeah. I was going to say, how expensive was that for you? Did he make you re do the repair or fix the repair? No, you know, he actually, it was a pretty, it did nothing to the Land Cruiser. Absolutely nothing. It, I mean, just the, the way it hit on the corner, pretty strong still on the back of an old cruiser and it hit the bedside of his truck. We were able to kind of like pop it out most of the way. And it was, it was a pretty clean F-250, but it had, it was a work truck for him, so he he was very forgiving and didn't you know stick it to me too bad and make me pay for it because we just popped the dent out and called it good. Okay, good. And so then, uh, besides airing up the tires and trying to get it started, what was the uh, what was the goal and process? Well, so the 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 ideal goal was to have that running by the time I got my driver's license, so I had something to uh, run and drive. So. This is back in the early, this is mid-90s, mid, mid 90s, 95, 96. I had a Spectre Off-Road catalog. They were like kind of one of the only ones with really good printed material back in the day and still do, still uh, you know, a neat company. They, I, I would go through that catalog just making lists of all the little things I needed, plus going to our local Toyota dealership and like bugging the parts guys for hours on end to go through the parts diagrams on their computer. And they were super nice, giving me all these printouts of different aspects so I could make lists and just slowly started buying parts. And I worked at a little small engine shop in Draper, the next like little adjoining city and um, made decent money for a 15 year old making, I don't know what it was, $9 an hour, which I thought was the world at the time and was really good pay. And I would use every penny I had to buy more Land Cruiser parts and every birthday gift, whether it was from my parents or my brothers or my 
you know, grandparents, I'd say, Hey, I don't, I don't need anything special. I just need this land cruiser part. So I was beg borrowing and stealing anything I could to get that thing rebuilt by the time I was 16. And we ended up tearing it down a lot further than I hoped. Right. Um, so I didn't have it done by the 16. So we ended up buying us somewhere along the way. A friend had a Suzuki Samurai, a 1987 Suzuki Samurai for sale for $1,500. No, sorry, $500, $1,500 for the Lancers. I paid 500 bucks for a, a 1987 Suzuki Samurai that needed an engine rebuild. It was like blowing smoke out the tailpipe horribly. So my dad and I hurried and rebuilt the motor on that ourselves. And that was the vehicle I actually drove when I turned 16 while we were still finishing the Land Cruiser. We ended up doing sheet metal and paint and everything on it. Oh, wow. You went full in. We went full in. Yeah. It kind of it, it, uh, spiraled out of control as we started taking things apart. Right. That's, uh, that's pretty typical. My first vehicle and what I did that with was a 54 Volkswagen Bug. Oh, so, very cool. Those yeah. are neat. And those are also super valuable these days. Yeah. I don't, I don't have it any longer. I sold it when I left, left Utah, uh, Cedar City back in the night, um, back in about 2000. But uh, still wish I had it, but nope, don't. So then... Uh, you gave it up. Yeah, I had to. Anyway, the... Um, I got a pretty penny for it. No motor, transmission shot, front end shot, but it had all the body parts, all the original body parts, and got three grand for it back in two thousand. So it was I didn't I didn't lose out too bad. Very good. Well, yeah, you didn't do too bad. That's not shabby. No, no. So then um, that cruiser is that? Do you still have that cruiser? No, I don't. Just just like your VW, I, like I, there's many days I wish I could say I wish I could say I did, and I wish I did, but I sold it for a reason, right? Like you kind of there's a reason at the time, whether it was financial or family, and so I don't necessarily like super regret it. And it's been through a handful of owners, but I still know the guy that owns it. He's in Colorado with it now, and he's done a V8 swap and a lot of other things. So it's kind of fun to still see it pop up every once in a while. And I've I've had the chance to buy it back at least twice when it's been listed for sale. And, and it, it made no more sense then than it did to keep it. So it was what it was. And I sold that to finish building a 40 that I have now that I, I, I think I sold it 99 or 2000. I sold that 68 FJ 40 to finish building the 1972 FJ 40. It's a blue one that I still have to this day. So I've had it for about, man, coming up on 25 years now. Nice. Nice. You get through high school, you've got your your Toyota, and did you keep your Suzuki around for a couple of years, or once you got the Toyota done, you uh, you you got rid of the Suzuki? No, the Suzuki stayed around for a little while. That thing's like a early side by side. I call them. They're like the original side by side. When you think about the size and the capability of those little machines, yep. I still have a really like soft spot for those. And so that stayed around for a few years. In fact, one of my brothers started driving it. He was you know using it as a pizza delivery vehicle in the winter time. So he wasn't driving his car. I can't, you know, all the, the dynamics and then ended up selling it to a friend that used it for a while. And I, I haven't kept track of it since then, but, um, yeah. So having the four by four was important to me, but it wasn't the Samurai or the Land Cruiser. I, and I guess I should back up a tiny bit there. The reason I needed in my mind had to have a four by four was when I was like yeah, that same age, 13, 14, my mom and dad gave me some books for a birthday or Christmas. I don't remember, like some ghost towns of Utah and some lost treasures of Utah, the roads mine, all these cool old legend books. And I was like a hundred percent convinced I was going to be a, a gold prospector by the time I could drive. 
that I would spend my entire summers in between school up in the mountains prospecting for gold and climbing through old mines and checking out ghost towns, which I still do a lot of to this day, but it didn't come to fruition as a 16-year-old that I was living off the grid as a mountain man, as I would have hoped, but I, I did my best. So that's kind of why the four by four made sense for me. And, and that then it turned into becoming, I would call myself a cruiser enthusiast. And then that turned into a business in later years. Right. And so like through high school, you said you had a job making $9 an hour. What was that again? I worked at a small engine shop. It was small called, engine. uh, right. the pipe connection in Draper. It was a landscaping supply place. We didn't sell, uh, like pipe pipes, as you would think these days. We're not Colorado. This is Utah, but it was called the Pipe Connection, and I worked on small engines like uh, cha- sharpening chainsaw blades or rebuilding lawnmower engines. So it was a fun job, and got to start collecting some of my own tools, buying and collecting tools. So it was, a, and it paid pretty well too for being fifteen, sixteen years old. And after that, what did you what did you step into? Well, so after that, I ended up getting a job at the local AutoZone, kind of a, had been in the AutoZone grabbing parts. It was the closest part store to my parents' house and kind of closest to my high school there. Um, one of the closest and just ended up kind of meeting the manager because he recognizes a kid in there buying parts all the time because I've got these old projects that always needed something or needed oil changes. And he ended up offering me a job at some point. So I worked at an AutoZone for a couple of years just in high and uh, probably just by that, by my early college years. And I did some construction along the way too with some of the AutoZone was a night job, but kind of got me dabbling and buying parts and figuring out who sold what around the Valley made it really good to know where to get all the, the different things I was always hunting down. Right. And then what was the transition from working for other people to, uh, to having cruiser outfitters? When did that transition take place? Yeah, so Cruiser Outfitters actually existed. It started in 92, so well before I even had a driver's license, and it was in downtown Salt Lake as a Land Cruiser shop. And there were a couple cruiser heads that ran it, and I started going down there. I probably went for the first time. I remember going in 95 before I had my driver. This before I was 16, after we'd bought that first 68, because I remember having to get my mom to give me a ride there. I didn't even drive there, and I was looking for a roll bar, just a factory Toyota roll bar. The 68 didn't have a roll bar in it from the factory. There was nothing when you took the top off. And my parents had made a rule that if I was going to take the top off of the Land Cruiser, I at least had to have a factory roll bar bolted in the back. So I went down and bought one. And at the time, it was maybe $100. And I remember the first time I went there, I remember seeing so many Land Cruisers, like, you know, 50-plus Land Cruisers in the parking lot and in the parts area where they were parting out, taking things apart and just, like, drooling over oh my goodness this is like paradise for me to sit and look at all these different ones and i'm sure to them i was just this annoying kid with a bazillion questions but they were uh, super generous to kind of keep indulging me and answering and then over the years the next uh, three four years i bought a lot of parts as i rebuilt that 68 and then um in nine just after 98 99 yeah just after high school i had been down there a lot and got to know daryl who was the, the previous owner of cruiser outfitters and I was wanting to start building a new 40. I kind of had some ideas of things I wanted to do to the next one to make it a little bigger, better yet than my first one. And he offered me a job parting out Land Cruisers. He had maybe called 10 or 12 cruisers outside on kind of the, the street, on this little side street that were all wrecks or super crusty, rusty ones. 
And he said, if you part all of those out this summer, you can have all the parts you need off of those to build the cruiser you want to build. Just build them from scratch. Put disc brake axles off a 60 on a 40 frame. Just you know, kind of make a mud of a cruiser, but with this vision of what the perfect setup to me was. And I don't think he thought I was really going to do it and take him up on it, but I did. So <laughs> I would, in between my other jobs and summer that summer, I spent all summer taking apart land cruisers. So the process was kind of, it was a lot of fun. We'd use the forklift and I'm, I'm like an 18 year old, right? This is like the coolest job in the world to get a lift land cruisers onto a trailer with a forklift and they're beat up once. So you're just ramming the forks through the roof. They're usually crusty or rollovers. We'd put them on a trailer and then I would put them on jack stands on the trailer in all sorts of sketchy ways using a high lift and, uh, then pull the axles out. We'd pull engines, trannies, TKs, anything that was valuable parts. We would pull all that out and put it in the parts warehouse and then just basically build it like this carcass on there and then part out a couple more in the parking lot and jam all their bad or crusty or unusable parts into those and then take to the scrapyard. Um, so I learned just a ton about land cruisers by taking them apart. Um, didn't, didn't mean I knew how to put them back together, but I at least knew where everything went on one of them. Right. That's half the battle. That's half the battle. Yeah. So, and, and in the process, I, I, you know, he, he totally honored the deal and gave me all the, the cool parts I needed to build my, the 40 that I still have now. So I started building that in 99 and finished it like in 2001. So it took me a couple years and he let me use the shop there after hours or kind of keep it parked over in a corner and, and uh, built it just kind of out of all different parts from tons of different vehicles to make one FJ40 that had kind of the goods I wanted. So late model 2F engine, 60 axles, but the five speed transmission to kind of like the best of things that I, uh, I wanted to have on my dream cruiser. Awesome. Awesome. And then, so after, after that working for, you know, d- dismantling and, and warehousing parts and stuff like that and then building your own. How long did it take until you became either a partner or the owner? Uh, two years. So two, okay. two or three years, like, so t- uh, 2001. So um, along that process, got to know Daryl really well. He's a, an amazing, neat gentleman that had been building cruisers for a lot of years and had some really cool ones himself. He decided somewhere like kind of in the in 2001 timeframe that, he's going to go and get out of cruisers and go be an underwater dive welder, uh, like commercial diver. There was just a ton of money in it at that time. He didn't have like any, you know, huge family or commitments other than the shop that he owned, but no commitment that like really kept him from being able to go do that. So he, he was basically looking to sell the company and he listed it with like some business company, like business listing services that came in and took photos of everything. And, we're going to try and sell it for like a pretty enor- you know, big amount, like as a runnable business. And just, it didn't, nobody took it. No, nobody snatched it up and had a lot of people come look at it and just say, Hey man, this is neat, but I don't know anything about land cruiser. So it'd be really hard for me to just take this over January 1st and you leave and here it is. Right. Right. So it just never sold. So in the meantime, I'm still helping him part out cruisers and, and got to know really well what we had there through parting them out and the building of my own. And I had already known the gentlemen, the, the folks at Spectre Off-Road, including uh, Marvin Kay. And I had gone down there and picked up parts before for Cruiser Outfitters and for my build, as well as just gone down there. If my family's on a vacation in California, I make them drive to Spectre to let me go wander around as a 15-year-old because it's just paradise, right? Get a sea land cruisers. I've done <laughs> that to other shops around the U.S. And, and the world as I've traveled. 
But uh, so I, I knew Marv, and somewhere the conversation came up that, hey, would you be interested in buying all the used parts we have? So that was kind of going to be Daryl's exit strategy, and I helped broker that deal. Marv and Kay came up to Salt Lake, looked at, spent a day going through all the parts with me, kind of showing them what we had. We had kind of a big shop area, just pretty organized, but also just typical parts shop that the, the stuff everywhere. And he did. He ended up buying not only all the used parts from us, but he bought all the shop equipment too. Uh, that, that was Daryl's kind of personal stuff because the building was just leased. So I helped then, then spent the next few months before Daryl's departure, uh, part like palletizing all that stuff. So we ended up shipping, uh, two, uh, diesel loads, two full tractor trailer loads of parts and equipment down to Spectre. And we like, they were pallets stacked floor to ceiling as tight as we could shrunk wrapped up and then loaded into a diesel. So it was, it was a lot of stuff we shipped down there of used parts and and really had no intentions of doing anything beyond that other than helping Daryl just sell off the business. And I got a lot of parts out of the deal as we were kind of parting things out and saying, hey, I need that for mine. And, um, you know, he was very generous that way uh, as I worked there. And uh, then in the end, uh, he was like, what are we going to do with the the business now? It's still Cruiser Alphers. It's still got accounts at ARB back in the day, like way before they were a mainstay and accounts with Toyota dealerships and other vendors and uh, I said, well, man, let me let me buy that from you. And so I wrote him a check for $10 just to have a monetary number to put on a check and bought it and officially took it over as of January 1st, 2002. So wow. uh, it's been a while now, but uh, yeah. $10, and, uh, and huh? Meantime, I'm still 10 bucks. Yeah, because I didn't, there wasn't really any, I mean, I got like a truckload of stuff that the Toyota dealership wouldn't take back or Marv didn't want or we forgot to load up on a pallet or something. It wasn't but, much, you know, but, it just didn't take over still a whole lot. An established name and goodwill. Yeah, exactly. So there, and that's what I saw tons of value in and, and as did Daryl, but he wanted to go to a good home. Just didn't want to just walk away from it. So we, I took over the PO box bill. I took over the, you know, the, we transitioned the bank account. So he got the money. He took all the money from it because it was his rightfully so. And, and I opened a new bank account and, as of January 1, 2002, it was, it was mine. Good, bad, or different, it was mine. Interesting. And uh, at that point, what, did, what was – obviously, it's the business that you wanted to, to, to work. So was it all about – and you had no inventory, basically. Did you have a building, or did you just have the no. name and a bank account and saying, okay, I'm going to get started on this? That's it. I had the name, a bank account with no money in it because just I started probably put it, you know, whatever they make you have a hundred dollars to open a bank account, a business account at the time, and just a tiny bit of random inventory, not even really anything sellable. And meanwhile, Daryl didn't do any internet or e-commerce business because, well, that wasn't really happening at that time anyway, not to any degree. And he was a full in-person shop. So they, we were doing paint and body and reskins of sheet metal tubs and exhaust and engine rebuilds. It wasn't like a shipping parts. Like he did very little of that because just didn't have the time. But, uh, and yeah, no building cause the building was leased and the lease expired that exact same time frame, And they came in and ended up being a, a Eurosport, like a BMW shop after that. So yeah, I just, I took over what was there, but the, the most valuable thing to me, the name was valuable. Yes. Had some cachet, particularly in the local cruiser community. But the accounts were what was valuable. Right. Because at the time, a lot of people didn't even know who ARB was. Cruiser guys kind of did, but it was still a, 
not a household name. Um, getting a Toyota dealer account wasn't a huge deal, but it was something. Having a wholesale account with some history there. And then uh, West Coast Differentials and some of these other early brands that we were dealers with back in the late 90s, mid 90s. So there was just some cachet there. And uh, meanwhile, I'm still a full-time student at that point and a full-time and still working other, still working a construction job and part-timing at AutoZone. And uh, I kind of gave up on the AutoZone one, said, hey, that's too much. I got too many irons in the fire and just went to, I was working construction, doing school and selling Land Cruiser parts. And how did you, how did you acquire the parts? Was it just um, buying up old Land Cruisers or, or did, you know, through your, your accounts, new stuff? Uh, both, but mostly focusing towards moving towards new stuff. Okay. Though I was still buying, I'd still buy 40s and part them out. And I'm, you know, 21, 22 years old, living at mom and dad's house still as I went through college. I was actually working on moving them out of the house. That was my, my story. I was always going to tell them they needed to move since I'd lived there my whole life. It wasn't fair. <laughs> they were very, but they were very, very kind to let me, as long as I was going to school and working, I didn't have to pay rent. And I took advantage of that because I also ran a business out of their house for a while too. And uh, they didn't always love that, but pallets would show up of Land Cruiser parts. And uh, they had like a little side shop building that I could use, a little shop place I could use to store parts. And I would part out cruisers on the side of their house, but kind of outgrew that within a couple of years and had to get my own place. Uh, but yeah, so I would just sell parts online and buy new stuff. And uh, I was on Pirate early in those days. I think, you know, I joined Pirate in 99 timeframe and Mud in the uh, like roughly not too long after I hate mud kicked on and would just kind of pedal parts on those places. And I remember being on like on, on pirate being on pirate and seeing browsing the classifieds for people's wanted ads, like, Hey, need 456 gears for my land cruiser. I'm going like, Hey, I can order and sell those. I've got an account for those. So I would order them and drop ship them or order two of them and sell one and just started building an inventory from there. And uh, we've kind of just kept on rolling that same principle from that time other than now we stock over 7,500 different parts in our building here in Murray. Wow. I was going to ask you how many SKUs you had. So that's, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's grown a lot. Yeah. We stock a lot of inventory. So now we, we drop ship about nothing. We, our goal is we ship everything kind of um, same day as orders are, is our best goal. So even right, like right up to a full suspension kit, if they order it before three o'clock or so, we can still have it palletized and shipped the same day like a full leaf spring kit. We, we build transmissions and T cases and we usually ship those within 24 hours. So you can buy a brand new five speed transmission and split T case for any 40, 50, 60, 70, et cetera. And we'll ship it within a day or two. So we've really aimed to have enough inventory here to support that. That's awesome. And how many guys do you have working? There's 12 of us. Yeah. 12 of us here at the shop. So, um, about half of those are uh, supporting, um, either phone or e-commerce customer service and sales. And the other half would be um, shipping and then like one full-time doing installs and tech stuff and a couple that help with that as well. Okay. So you're not just selling and rebuilding parts, but you're, you're, you're building or repairing vehicles as well. We do. Yeah. Mostly just uh, builds and installs. We don't get into any like restoration services anymore. Yeah. Haven't, haven't played in that game for a long time, but we'll install suspension, bumpers, winches, snorkels, as well as a lot of turnkey builds. So 
For example, right now we're we're building a bunch of identical brand new 200 series Land Cruiser, which are the latest generation here in the U.S. So they're full builds. They're getting they actually get shipped over to Germany and they cut the back half of them off and turned into campers and then come back to us and we do the bumpers, the skids, lockers and gears, front and rear fuel tanks, suspension, kind of the whole work. So do a lot of full turnkey builds like that, as well as um, we've been really fortunate in the last few years to work with Toyota and Lexus corporate and doing some uh, builds. So we had, we've had builds at SEMA in their booths the last couple of years. Oh, very good. So how did, uh, how did the Land Cruiser or the Cruiser Heritage Museum spin off of all that? So yeah, yeah. I so meanwhile, I'm just all things Land Cruiser. My life doesn't ever get too far away from Land Cruisers through my mid twenties and into my thirties. My wife and she, my wife's an amazing human being and an absolute saint because she puts up with all this all the time. This is Land Cruisers all over the house and Land Cruisers. We don't go really anywhere that doesn't somehow end up involving Land Cruisers. And so she's a rock star about it. And uh, in the I met. A gentleman named Greg Miller, uh, local to Salt Lake here, well-known in the Land Cruiser community because of his affinity to Land Cruisers, but his family is uh, like the Larry H. Miller group that a lot of Toyota dealerships and other vehicle marquees, and met Greg through um, an event that he was that he was planning and invited me to be involved in the early planning called Cruiser Fest, and that's just kind of an all-things celebration of, of Land Cruisers. And that event still goes on to this day and has become part of the Land Cruiser Museum. In the early days, though, it took place out at the Miller Motorsports Park, which I know you're familiar with because there were rock crawls there back in the days, which I, in another another hat I wore, I did uh, competitive rock crawling in the early U-Rock and old school rock crawl days. Did did that for quite a few years and had a lot of fun there. Um, but so I kind of knew, knew some of the, the people there and knew that, that organization, we ended up doing the cruiser fest event at the same spot where the rock crawls all took place and, uh, got to know John Williams, who you mentioned in the intro. And John is my uncle, by the way, not officially like there's no paper trail of that, but if anybody asks, John is my uncle. Okay. <laughs> we refer to what we refer to him as. Yeah. He's the older one. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Right. John's shop is like three minutes from my shop here in Murray. We're, we're practically neighbors, but okay. um, both busy guys. So we never get a, we don't get to catch up enough, but uh, yeah, so we did cruiser fest met Greg through that. And um, that was an awesome celebration of land cruiser still happens every year. It's a really cool event. And through that, an event called um, Expedition 7 spooled up. And that was with Greg Miller and Scott Brady. And Scott Brady is the publisher of Overland Journal, uh, the founder of Overland International and the Expedition Portal Forum, et cetera. So kind of really early uh, groundbreaker in that kind of realm of overlanding and expedition travel. And Greg and Scott, I actually introduced him. Scott was in town for the Outdoor Retailer Show. And we just got together at a, a mutual friend, uh, mutual friend's house. Paul May was doing a little uh, industry party at his house, and and met, and those two ended up going to breakfast and talking about their shared love of Land Cruisers. And Greg said, "Man, wouldn't it be cool to drive Land Cruisers on all seven continents?" And Scott Brady said, "Yeah, actually, I'd love to do that." And I've even planned kind of a similar trip, but with motorcycles. So anyway, things kind of spooled up, and they ended up pitching this idea to drive Land Cruisers on all seven continents, and that's called Expedition 7. And I was invited to be part of that on the first leg, the North American leg, and then subsequently ended up doing a to- five continents total with Expedition 7. And 
we took the, those Land Cruisers are on display at the Land Cruiser Heritage Museum. Um, so Expedition 7 is a really neat story. Talk all about that because that was a lot of amazing adventures. But during Expedition 7, as we traveled, Greg and I often talked about there needs to be a, a one place that is like the Land Cruiser Museum. And the Land Cruisers used for Expedition 7, the first two were called VDJ 78s. They're troop carrier turbo diesel Land Cruisers, not available in the U.S., unfortunately. Um, they came out of Australia. And Greg and Scott were able to go to Japan and ceremoniously watch those vehicles come off the assembly line. It wasn't the exact vehicles just because of the timing of automobile production, but they got to watch the same vehicles come off the assembly line. Right. While in Japan, they went and visited a bunch of auto museums, including Toyota museums, and they, Greg really noted, like, hey, there's just, there's not like, a Land Cruiser museum, like what? There's a Land Cruiser in a museum of Toyotas, but not like one is to celebrate this amazing vehicle, which is undeniably an uncontested Toyota's flagship vehicle. So he set out to change that. So through the Expedition Seven journey, as we're traveling and spending enormous amounts of time together in on these road trips through many countries around the world and looking at things, so many cool cruisers around the world we spooled up this idea of what uh, the museum would need to have to be uh, properly called a museum, you know, like do it justice to call the museum. And, and then that, that's how the museum formed. Uh, and that's where the idea came from. And Greg had the, both the vision, but also the, the financial means to kind of make that possible and, and spooled up from there. We're now in the third location, which is in downtown Salt Lake in a built, uh, retrofitted specifically for the museum. And it is just absolutely amazing. Like it's a must visit. Excellent. Excellent. And let's talk about the, the expedition seven, um, the seven continents. You did five of them. What continents did you, what are the, what, which ones did you do besides North America? Yeah. So I did North America and then following North America, the vehicle shipped over to Europe. I didn't do the Europe section. Uh, Greg actually did that with his family, Took had a bunch of family members come over and they toured through Europe, which is kind of the easier areas to travel because it's just easy it is to go country to country in uh, in Europe particularly. Then I came back in and did the Asia section, which was like through Russia and Siberia. We drove uh, all the way through Russia to Magadan, which is a really neat adventure and right now not even remotely possible. So glad we were able to do it when we did. Uh, after that, the vehicles shipped to Australia, and I did the Australia section. We crisscrossed all over Australia, including doing the Canning Stock Route. Did a self-supported trip on that, which is an amazing adventure, 1,899 kilometers of self-supported travel, so kind of think 1,200 miles, which was a really neat off-road trip. And then we did, from there, the vehicle shipped to Africa. We did a really amazing journey through uh, South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana, including uh, a lot of cool game drives and driving, you know, something special about being able to drive next to elephants and rhinoceroses. Pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, then and we did the skeleton coat there, too, which was also a very unique uh, dunes, about a thousand mile route through sand dunes on the skeleton coast. Very, very remote area. From there, we shipped to the vehicle shipped to South America and... Uh, sorry, from there, the vehicle shipped to Antarctica. One Land Cruiser went from Africa to Antarctica, so I did not get to do that one. That 
would have been an amazing adventure, but they had a great trip and, and uh, did it justice. And, but they only sent one vehicle, not the, not the full fleet of trucks, which had grown to three at this point, three E7 trucks that we were traveling with. And then they all regrouped again in South America, and we drove them all the way back to Salt Lake from the wow. ship of South America. So we, they shipped into Buenos Aires, and we drove them all the way down to Ushuaia, which is Patagonia, the southern drivable portion of the uh, Pan American Highway, and then drove them all the way back to Salt Lake and got back just for Cruiser Fest, which was happening that weekend. It was kind of quickly planned timing, and those vehicles are now on display in the museum. That's pretty dang cool. And how many people would would be each vehicle? Uh, two to three per vehicle, um, and the, sometimes more. There were segments where we had, um, Greg had family members or uh, just other friends from the community. He really wanted it to be about uh, sharing those experiences with as many as possible. And I, I think he's often said one of his biggest regrets is ever having empty seats in the vehicles, like even one or two empty seats in the back, because that would have just been a great spot and experience to get to know somebody and and uh, enrich them too by traveling. So he he did his best to fill the seats whenever possible. And how much time did you spend in Australia? Uh, I was there that trip, I think, for about 10 weeks. 10 weeks? uh, Okay. To crisscross Australia. Okay. Because I know that Shelly and I went and visited. We were there for like 18 days. And uh, I decided the next time I go back, it's got to be for like six months. Yeah, it's easy to cover a lot of ground and spend a lot of time in Australia. My, likewise, my wife and I, we went in 2006 with a, a couple friends, uh, or another couple, some friends that were also Land Cruiser, um, the Land Cruiser buddy of mine, his wife, and we were there. We'd say we did like a, a three-week trip, and it was just like go, 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 which was great. We covered a lot of ground, but we, we said the same thing, like next time, six sounds about right. Right. Did you ever have any run-ins with uh, kangaroos? We had a lot of run-ins with kangaroos, like uh, literal run-ins with kangaroos. Uh, yes, unfortunately, there were some kangaroos that make it. Yeah, well, that's that's all right. The the that's kangaroo they're, lovers, they're, sorry, kind of like but, a deer in the U.S. Yes, exactly. Um, I tell the story when we first got to Australia, the first four or five days, all I saw were dead kangaroos, and I swore that. The tourism board was just throwing dead kangaroos out on the road so that tourists could say they saw one, you know. And uh, we pulled into this national park, which Australian national parks are like state parks here in the United States, I would say. Quite a bit different, you know, than, than a national park here. But we pull into our campsite, and there's three big gray kangaroos standing there. I mean, they weren't there when I first pulled in, but as I'm unloading the the Land Rover that we had rented, I turn around and, you know, just within feet are three big, mean-mugging kangaroos. You know, and you, you always see the pictures of the, of the you know, the, the bodybuilder kangaroos, like they're on steroids or something, and that's exactly what these three look like. And they probably came to my nose height, and all I thought about was, oh, my God, I'm going to get jumped by this, you know, by three kangaroos. <laughs> Did you ever have any close beasts, calls? They? Yeah, I mean, we had some that would get kind of, like, quite close, even in camp. They'd kind of roll through, but not, nothing, no, no, like, real close calls. More so with camels. Um, there's a lot of feral or call wild camels throughout 
Australia outback as well. And I'm far more afraid of one of those. As far as an animal striking a vehicle, it's quite different than hitting a, a low slung, low center of gravity kangaroo. Right. You don't want to hit any of them. You know, like that, that's not the goal. Certainly not the no. goal, but it happens when you spend that much time on the ground and that much driving. But uh, camels are far scarier as far as what would happen to hit one of those with a vehicle. Oh, it'd be like elk. You know, they'll, 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 they'd take, just take the roof off. Precisely. Yeah, that was... So we definitely were on guard for that situation. So then, with, when you're in Australia, how many vehicles did you have there? Two or three. So that at was that three point? vehicles we had. Yeah, we had two. The original two VDJ seventy eight troopies. Those were really only set up. They could haul four people, but they had all the living. Uh, apparatus inside, like full bed systems, fridge systems, kind of everything. So they were best set up for two people because then you didn't have to take the beds apart um, to go back to passenger mode, Okay, which we still did a little bit just to accommodate as many people as possible per Greg's you know, want and desire. But really, it was becoming evident we needed a people hauler. And that actually happened on the North American trip. And that's what got me involved is we ended up taking a little um, a, a 70 series two-door truck pickup truck to be the equipment hauler and really to kind of haul around camera gear and help ferry other supplies around. So this, this other truck became involved, but that truck had a different diesel motor than the V8 turbo diesels. And it kind of was just incongruent in its travel. So we ended up, uh, Greg wanted to get a truck that had the same platform engine and a four door cause then it could haul more people, but also it was still a truck. So it could haul a bunch of gear. So I went over to Australia early before the Expedition 7 trip got there, and we pre-built um, a VDJ-79 four-door truck. It had all the all the goods, so it was built very similar with the bull bar, the winch, everything off-road gear, but had a tray-back uh, canopy on the back, so kind of think a big enclosed box that have become quite popular here in the U.S. in the last few years. But this was a decade ago. They were very popular in Australia even then, and that became like the supply a hauler so we so for example when we did the canning stock route we had nine drums in the back of that truck to carry all the diesel fuel right okay what about this uh x overland yeah so expedition overland is a, a youtube adventure series and it's now on um the overlander network which is kind of like a paid network where you can watch up but they'll eventually end up on uh youtube uh, later on so it's a great group and I met Clay Croft, who's the founder of Expedition Overland, through Expedition 7. So he was the – Clay and I both traveled to Russia together to do that Russia-Siberia-Asia segment of Expedition 7. Clay was going to serve as the cinematographer for that. So the whole adventure was filmed and photographed um, for different media outlets, also just for Greg's archives of the adventure. And I'd met Clay previously, theme of the year before. This would be maybe 2011, I guess. Um, he was just he was there pitching his up and coming adventure series that he was planning to film. They were going to drive to Prudhoe Bay, drive up to Alaska and film it and do a YouTube series. And he was there looking for sponsors, so had kind of met him there. And uh, there was a the previous cinematographer for Expedition Seven. His name's Bruce Dorn. He's done a lot of really amazing stuff. Um, the videographer, I guess, Bruce had an eye injury and couldn't come to Siberia for E7, so Clay was a fill-in. And uh, Scott Brady gave him maybe 48 hours to decide if he could go. I was already planning on going, but um, Clay said, yep, I'm going to shift some things around. I'm going to do this. This is a great opportunity. 
And so he and I really got to know each other by traveling on that trip. It was, uh, we just had two trucks at that point, the two troopies. So there were four of us. And then we had a Russian fixer with us, Andre, awesome human being that helped us navigate all the nuances of traveling in Russia. Uh, so got to know those, fu- yeah, we'll call, we'll call him a fixer. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of <laughs> new like hired mafia protector. <laughs> it kind of feels that way. Yeah. He wasn't private security by any means, but he, he had traveled that area. He's a four by four enthusiast from Russia. Um, but he also just kind of knew how to get through weird situations like border checkpoints. And, uh, we got pulled over a handful of times for paperwork checks and he'd get out there and just puff cigarette smoke in an officer's face and they'd puff smoke back at him and they'd yell and argue a bit. And then we'd get back in the cars and drive like nothing ever happened. It was, he, he was the guy to have, he just made things happen. <laughs> uh, and really he just kind of knew the route through Siberia. Cause that is like the road of bones and, um, pretty fairly established road. We could have certainly navigated, but it was good to have him there to really add some local flair and flavor and help us embrace the culture too, by being an interpreter. So he was just absolutely a great resource. But there was five of us, so you travel with five people for a month. You really get to know them and chat a lot about their plans and goals and what they've done in life and what they want to do, and really learned all about what Clay was planning with Expedition Overland, which was at that time to drive up to Prudhoe Bay, take some friends and film an adventure series and try and spool something up in that world. And overlanding, I'm using my air quotations right now, and expeditioning and all these you know, now common industry buzzwords were really new 10, 11 years ago. Right. And Clay and Scott were kind of breaking ground and really getting that, that whole industry moving. And they weren't doing it because they wanted an industry around it. They were doing it because they loved that kind of travel and they knew that other people did too. Um, but it was fun to learn what they want to do. And Clay was planning his big trip. So was excited for him. Well, fast forward another year, I had just finished driving back from South America with Expedition 7. We, we drove, as I mentioned, from Patagonia all the way back through uh, South America, shipped the vehicles from uh, Colombia, from Cartagena up to Cologne, Panama, and then finished driving through Central America back to Utah. Well, Clay was getting ready to go the opposite direction because he had just finished there the year before they had done their Pan America trip up to Prudhoe Bay, and now they wanted to drive from Montana, where they're located, down to uh, Panama, and do the Central America portion of the Pan American Highway. So he'd just been calling me asking questions like, hey, what was travel like here? Or what's this border like? Or how did this work? Or how do you do this? And if it, I was answering the best I could and helping him with any intel and information. And I traveled down there a few other times in between uh, Guatemala and Panama and Costa Rica. So had a pretty good vibe on those areas. And he finally was like, can you come on this trip with us? And uh, so I, I said, absolutely, it sounds fun. And we drove from, they picked me up in Salt Lake and we spent uh, maybe six, eight weeks, could have been even a little more, like yeah, eight or 10 weeks driving from Salt Lake down to, we did Baja on that excursion, ferried over to the mainland and drove all the way down to Panama and made it into the Darien Gap into Yaviza, which is kind of like the last little outpost town before you would have to cross the Darien jungle to get to Columbia, which you can't really drive. So we, we accomplished that trip. And, uh, since I've been on a whole lot of trips with them, we've done, we did all of South America and finished the Pan American. We've done Australia, uh, a couple different trips up into Canada doing the McKenzie trail. Uh, we've done I'm trying to think of other places, got a lot of cool places. And we just, this last year did 
a Nordic series where we did Europe, primarily Scandinavia, so Finland, Sweden, uh, up in that area, Norway, and then they they ship to Faroe Islands and Iceland before coming home. So that stuff's all just going to be starting on YouTube in a couple weeks here. Nice. Very nice. What are your plans for the future? Do you have any uh, grand plans on any more travel or... Nothing like super set in stone, um, but just always looking at opportunities. We like to go visit the Dakar. I, I haven't ever raced the Dakar. That's kind of on my hit list one year. One of these days, I don't know if it'll ever happen because it's financially a lot of money, but just logistics, it's a lot too. Right. Um, but we've, uh, a group of us, we, we desert race. So we have uh, raced the Baja 1000 uh, eight or 10 times now. And we, we run a Land Cruiser in that. Of course, don't get too far away from Land Cruisers. So we've got some desert racing again coming up this year. We'll do the full bore series here in Utah and probably race the 1000 in Mexico again. And that same group of guys, there's a few of us that really want to do Dakar, as I was alluding to. So we've traveled down to South America a few times, and we've been over to uh, Saudi Arabia twice to watch the Dakar as well just to learn more about it, see what the bay of wax are like, see what the cars are like, see it first person. So that's on a bucket list. I don't know if I'll ever get there. Right. Right. Is that the same team that, that Woody helps out at the thousand or comes down to? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Woody okay. and Heather have come down a handful of times with us over the years and helped you uh, run pits and pit support. And absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So we've been doing that for about a decade now as well. Um, running the, the, we, it's called kangaroo racing. Yeah. Great group of folks. And we have a, a big group And this year. We actually supported two cars. Uh, the 1000 last November, we raced our car as well as a, uh, an LX 600 Lexus, which is like the new Lexus SUV. We did a race support for a team from Japan and uh, we'll probably help them again this year too. Very good. That's quite a plateful of, of travel plus business owning. Do you, uh, do you see the business continuing to as long as they keep producing new series, you'll always have something to work on. Because I would imagine that 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 the old FJ forties um, are because they're such a classic anymore. It's kind of like the old Broncos trying to find them. You know, old ones is is more difficult. Is that true? Yeah, no, that's tr- it's hundred percent true. And I I kind of wonder and worry about the shelf life on the Land Cruiser business, as I have for a decade. But it's actually just continued to grow for a couple reasons. Um, one is we still sell a lot of repair parts, the boring stuff like bearings, sills, gaskets, tie rod end kits. So it's not all just about the fun accessories that you, that customers kind of only buy once. A lot of what we sell is the boring stuff they need every five to 10 years, the knuckle rebuild kit, the clutch kit. So we've imported and assembled kits for a lot of different, uh, just service items. And because of that, half of our business is actually wholesale. Uh, which means we're selling to a lot of other cruiser shops and even Toyota dealerships or just, you know, Tom's Tire in Kentucky or something. You know, they, they get a Land Cruiser in and they need a knuckle rebuild kit or a tie rod end kit or a rear axle sill. Yeah, they can probably find it other places because, you know, certainly they're out there. Um, when I say other places, like not traditional cruiser shops, but they would rather call us because we know it's going to fit and we kind of put it together as a kit that comes with the sills, the gasket, the diff gasket all the items they need to do the job. So there's more growth for that to happen. But the the cruiser market in general, now that Land Cruisers, uh, they're so prevalent around the world. They're not as prevalent in the U.S., though. It's a, a good-sized market. 
But once a Land Cruiser is 25 years old or older, it is legal for import to the United States. That's our federal laws. Canada's 15 years. Different countries have different rules. But we are seeing just a flood of import Land Cruisers coming to the United States. Once they hit 25 years old, everyone wants these cool turbo diesel and diesel 70s and 80s and the 100 series will be coming up next. So there's just some really cool models coming over. So we've, and, and I got in on that kind of personally early, bought an import uh, Land Cruiser right when they first became legal, a, a 70 series. It was a 1986, so it was like a year after they were legal to have in the U.S. I, I bought one, and, and we've really done a lot to stock parts for those models too. So ironically, some of our, they're not our biggest part of the business, but a decent part of our business is selling parts to land cruisers that never even came to the U.S. Now, we do ship a lot internationally, but a lot of those are just going towards uh, owners of those import vehicles stateside and Toyota dealerships that get one in their shop and can't get a clutch kit for it through their normal channels. But we have a clutch kit for a HZJ70 series in stock, for example. Nice. So um, that'll continue to grow. Yeah, so there, there's some, some excitement there. And uh, Toyota made the land cruiser into the U.S. up until um, 2021. The, the 200 series, and there's uh, lots of hints and rumors that something new is coming. So I think uh, there's still some runway for us. Good. I know that uh, you're on my uh, to-call for shopping list. I just posted up a little while ago about the uh, Shelly wanting to rebuild our, her, I should say, Series 60 1984 um, Land Cruiser. And it is like bone stock, 412,000 miles, and it's got a rod knock. Nice. And I know that like the okay. tie rod ends are held together with hose clamps, things like that. And, yeah. you know, I got a broken leaf spring and, of course, some from frame rot and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to – she wants to build the motor herself. Well, those are all, all things we can help with. That's that's our world is, is parts for engines, parts for steering, steering linkages, and – um, I, I think that's kind of part of why we do continue to grow. Is we just, we're actually finding more solutions than ever. Like I'll tell you one that I'm personally excited about. It's full, full nerdy, but, uh, we now have stock leaf springs for 40 series and 60 series. And when I say stock, they're made in Japan to stock specs look exactly like a stock spring. And that may sound so counterintuitive to most going like, man, I'm going to buy a lift kit if I buy new springs. But there's a big contingent of Land Cruiser owners that don't actually take them off road. And that's great. They build these because they want them to be preserved as originals and they drive them on Sundays. Or maybe, maybe they do a little off-roading, but they don't necessarily need a lift kit. So we're really excited to have those springs. And here we are, a vehicle that hasn't been made. The newest one was made 35 years ago, right, or 30-some-odd years ago. And we're still now tracking down new parts new offerings for those vehicles. Well, that's awesome. 60 series could be a great example of one that would need stuff like that. Maybe you don't need a lift kit or even want one. You want it to be stock. So yeah, because I was thinking, those options. I was looking and the only thing I could think of was going to, you know, like some two and a half inch old man emus. And mm-hmm. I, you know, with that then becomes, you know, you start looking at tires, bigger tires, mm-hmm. and then you look at, you know, gearing, and it was just like, oh, now it's going to, you know, just go blown out of proportion here. So I think uh, going the stock route is ideal. That's what she likes anyway. So Yeah, and if you are if you want to build it for off-road use, the OME couple-inch lift, I mean, it's fantastic, right? And bigger tires. I mean, there's there's so many pros to that. But if, if she just wants to keep it stock, well, that's it's fun that we uh, 
there's more options like that popping up, not just from us, the, the community in general um, is reproducing a lot of really cool parts. And on the note of the 40 series, you kind of mentioned they're not making them anymore. And you're right. Of course, of course they're not. But now just, just in the last three months, uh, a new company popped up and they were at SEMA last year. There's actually a couple companies, but one has a California warehouse now doing full replacement Land Cruiser sheet metal. There's been uh, industry companies doing door skins, door parts, tubs, Aqualoo up in Canada has been doing aluminum parts, but these guys are now doing like full turnkey complete sheet metal kits for a 40 series. So you could buy everything like a full body from them, not wow. just a tub, but a tub, a top doors. And there's already been companies making reproduction frames. So, uh, you know, there's companies like Jonathan Ward at Icon that have been building turnkey brand new Land Cruisers using all new and late model parts. Um, and he, he, was, he uses Aqualoo tubs and builds beautiful vehicles. But that, that's going to open up even more now that there's more options for those other parts. And I, I don't think it will uh, slow the economy of those vehicles at all. In fact, it's just going to grow them that people can build something from scratch or maybe restore something that people previously looked at and said, hey, that thing is unrestorable, right? It's too far gone. It needs to get parted out. Now you may say, hey, there's a frame. That's all we need to really start with. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's uh that's a that's a great idea. Cool. So personally, um kids, you're married? Yep, happily married. I've got an amazing wife, Candace, that uh she puts up with all this and actually even kind of embraces and supports it, which is still amazing that she's willing to <laughs> to dive in on this and, and put up with me. She's a rock star. Um, no kids. We have two dogs, two German shepherds that travel and do a lot of camping with us or uh, provide security and companionship when I am traveling when she's not able to make it. But um, yeah, she's she's really busy. She's got a, a kind of a she's in food cells and does a lot of travel and um, yeah, she's got a great job and, and does really good things there. And I travel a fair bit. So um, yeah, kids never came into our picture. I've got bunch of nieces and nephews that we love to spend time with and hang out with, but we'd love to send them home at the end of the day too. Yeah. I was going to say, that's always easier. That's the great thing about being a grandparent. You know, we got, <laughs> we got eight grandkids and you know, we can, we can visit them and uh, that's perfect. <laughs> perfect. And then send them home. Yeah, exactly. No, we uh, just, just wasn't our life plan the way things kind of worked out. And uh, yeah, but we're both happy. We, we live in Sandy, kind of the same, a little little ways away from where I grew up, a couple, couple miles away, but she also grew up in that same area, and the two of us have traveled a lot, and we just kind of never thought about, never really had an inkling to move anywhere far away because we both love Utah's recreation. So she mountain bikes and hikes, and uh, we do a lot of camping, and of course I do a lot of off-roading, and I ride dirt bikes and kind of play around some other things and just love Utah. We're, you know Utah well. We're 70% public lands, 70% federal lands, plus get into uh, Sitla lands and other state-owned properties. We've got pretty fortunate recreation opportunities. And despite the many efforts from a lot of angles to reduce those opportunities, we're still pretty fortunate. Right, right. I Before I left Cedar City, one of the things that we were battling with, uh, with the feds over was the Escalante Grand Staircase. Um, and them wanting to close everything down down there, and that was being pushed by SUA and uh, the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance or whatever. And it, you know, it ended up going that that direction. But yeah, that's a shame. Um, 
you know, you can still drive the major roads through there, but you can't drive the, the canyons or the washes or anything like we used to. So hopefully, uh, that the 2477 RS2477 keeps keeps more of those uh those old roads and uh accesses to the backcountry open. Agreed. Yep. Definitely I'm involved. I'm actually doing a class in about 2 weeks now teaching a class about uh land use uh RS2477 will be a major topic of that as well as state tenure right away. So in one of the other hats and irons I have in the fire is uh still very active in a lot of different land use fronts. I was a president of the Utah four-wheel drive association for quite a while, and I'm a tread lightly master trainer too. So definitely have a passion for that both because I love to visit those places personally, but also as a business, I, I see that there's not going to be much need for off-road parts and equipment if there isn't places to use them in the future. So I selfishly, uh, both selfishly and for my business, I guess that's selfish too, perhaps. Uh, but I want to see those opportunities preserved for the future. And Grand Staircase National, Escalante National Monument, G-S-E-N-M. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Yes. Um, that one's a great example that they came in and uh, made that a national monument. Bill, Bill Clinton did that from not even in Utah, did that from Arizona, as I recall. And it took quite a few years for all of those route closures to fully be implemented on the ground. Um, but when, when the dust settled, it was bad. Like so many neat recreation and motorized opportunities were limited to major corridor roads. And uh, we, 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 everybody from all sides will agree that the motorized recreation is a growing population, right? With the advent of side-by-sides and their popularity, but not just to mention van life and all these other outlets for people to drive motorized vehicles on public lands. The number is bigger than it ever has been. So uh, dwind- like putting a growing amount of users onto a dwindling amount of recreation opportunities is not a management strategy to me at all. That's a horrible management strategy. Now you're just corralling more users to less opportunity. That, that makes no sense. So I am uh, like 100% against historic route closures of any routes that were legal and open. I think they all need to be open. And um, you may or may not know this with the new borders of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, those routes were going to be preserved and restored, Rich. They were going to come back. But then we had another election yet again. So we had the new one. Uh, President Trump's administration rolled back uh, the size of uh, Grand Staircase National Monument, or Staircase Escalante National Monument, and they rolled back the size of Bears Ears. But then it just got reversed yet again. So we never saw the fruit of all that. We never saw those routes restored. So right. there was actually one route, Horse Canyon, in Grand Staircase that we went and we went and drove because it got reopened during Trump administration and now technically it's closed again because they rolled back the previous uh, monument status. So it's just, it's a mess down there. It is a mess. And then yeah, you enter the state's RS two four seven seven claims, the state and county class D road and two four seven seven claims. It's it's ugly, and it's going to be in litigation for years. Yeah, and and you know you're talking about the you know dwindling opportunity for a growing segment um you know where we noticed it in california a lot was the imperial sand dunes um you know it includes glamis and and all that area and you know what used to be just you know hundreds of hundreds of square miles thousands of square miles like you know the size of uh of johnson valley or more you know they've they've cut it down to where that now everybody is recreating in such a small area of Gordon Wells and the uh, Glamis that 
they say, oh, you know, now it's overpopulated. You know, there's too many people. You guys are, you know, what they've done is they've brought inner city problems out to the recreational areas because they forced everybody, you know, elbow to elbow. Yeah, it's it's mismanagement from the top down. It's bad. You know, and it can, it's easy to get doom and gloom, and, and certainly areas have it far worse than others. Fortunately, Utah as a whole is still, we've still got some amazing recreation opportunities for motorized recreation. Um, right. But every year, every month, there's something new. There's some new uh, resource management plan revision, some new travel management plan, some, you know, there's always efforts to reduce that. Not to mention, SUA still has grand visions for their Red Rock Wilderness Act and their, their wilderness bill. And somehow, despite that same growing number of users and same growing number of issues on the trail, they keep finding more wilderness. So is there even a problem if they keep finding more of it? Maybe we just don't need to do anything. But somehow it's gone from 3 million to 11 million acres of wilderness they've found. And uh, if that ever were to happen, that would be a major, major hit to uh, motorized recreation and access opportunities. It's not just about recreation. It's about access to some of these places. And that would be a major hit if that ever happens. Right, because they don't need they don't need a big block. All they need to do is block the avenues of access. Right. You know, so that's uh people need to be aware of that and, and help support those land use groups that uh that are trying to keep things open or reopen things and uh vote wisely. Vote wisely. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And it's uh, support the companies that support those efforts and don't support those companies that don't want to see motorized recreation. It's always heartbreaking. REI? (laughs) Right. Exactly. We can, we can name names too, right? Patagonia? It's always heartbreaking to see somebody, 100% Patagonia. It breaks my heart to see, it's Patagoochie in my mind, but (laughs) when somebody's got their Patagonia jacket on telling you how they love this trail and you're going like, you know, those guys like put money into closing this trail, the trail we're standing on they want closed to motorized use. It's, it's no joke. It's that real. That's how it's, you know, it's that, that, that black and white. It's that cut and dry. That's yep. how it is. Absolutely. Well, Kurt, I want to say thank you very much for uh, spending the time with us and talking about your life and your adventures and uh, especially the land use at the end here, because that to me is, uh, you know, I fought the battle pretty hard in the early two thousands with uh with what, you know, with the Rubicon and some other, and just, I got, I got burned out on it. But now that, uh, I've got a little bit more free time, I'm, I'm looking at throwing some energy into that. The other thing I'm going to throw energy into, and I'm going to ask everybody else to do as well, is the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. It's not just about competitions and racers. It's about businesses and land use and, you know, everything off-road. So, um, you know, People need to look at uh, helping with land use and uh, and spending twenty five dollars a year helping the off road motorsports Hall of Fame too. Because how are we going to else can we recognize those that have fought the fight? So, no, that's a, that's a great point. I need to learn more about that myself. I've I've followed it more in the recent years, just as uh, there's been inductees that I've personally known and uh, been people recognized and familiar with the organization. But I I need to deep dive and uh, learn a lot more about that and support it myself. So that's a great reminder. Excellent. Well, Kurt, thank you very much, and uh, look forward to talking to you some more when we go to get parts for the 84. Sounds good. We'd love to help. Thanks for the opportunity to, to chat today, Rich. Okay. You take care. All right. We'll see you. Okay. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. 
if you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.